there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to Nippon Trading International's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis of realestate.jp. He's a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families who are looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for over two decades now. And for about half of that time, he's been buying, selling and managing real estate properties in Tokyo on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So he's got dedicated loan officers in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts Panel Sessions, which means that you're already aware of the fact that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area, and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on sales at realestate.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so today we're back with our JREP crew, who I'm sure you've missed dearly. It's been a while since we published a JREP episode. And this one's a kind of a special one because we've got a guest joining us. His name is Michael, and he's asked if he could join us for a live Q&A session. And this was a very good one. We discussed some high-end macroeconomic stuff like Japan's declining population, possible solutions, and how feasible those are and also how this phenomena affects investment decisions. We then talk about what investment even looks like in the Japanese countryside where small townships are losing population by the day. And we riff a bit about what the numbers mean for metropolitan areas which seem to be rising in population, but what is the difference between organic growth, artificial growth, and fake growth or on paper growth, which is an interesting concept that might be fairly unique to Japan. And also on the topic of growth, we talk about capital growth. So does that exist in Japan? How and when does it work? If it does, and can it be relied upon? Super interesting chat there. We then talk foreign exchange and how that affects property investment in Japan or overseas in general. A bit about ski resort investments, short-term stay rentals like Airbnb in Japan, and all of the complications that come with that. Uh, hotel licenses, minpaku licenses, how easy or difficult it is to find compatible properties that would comply with the requirements for short-term stays. And then we talk a bit more uh, money. What are current property price trends in Japan, uh, availability, terms of mortgages, whether those are available to non-residents or not. What is the difference between home loans, investment loans, individual loans, business loans. And then we summarize with some more general investment tips, especially for beginners and people who are working on a tight budget. And then finally, about the potential to increase the value of properties through renovations, flipping them for a profit, and what kinds of yields can anyone expect in different locations in Japan. So a really, really deep dive this time around and longer than usual episode, but one that's packed full of excellent information that I'm sure you'll find some value in. Regardless of what your interest or take on the market here is, there's a, something for everyone in, the, in this talk. So enjoy the conversation and I'll see you again on the other side. Are going to recording to the cloud. We are on. All right, Japan real estate experts panel back in session, and we've got a live guest on the line today. Hello, Michael from Philadelphia. Hello, thank you for having me. 
It is entirely our pleasure. So, did you did you say you were at the uh, at the event, or you were tuning in on Zoom, or? Oh no, I uh, I'm a huge follower of your podcast on Spotify. Oh, oh my okay. god, yeah. you exist. <laughs> yeah, on my, on my commutes. You're you're what I listen to. <laughs> Michael oh. and Mom. <laughs> I've learned a lot from, uh, you know, just the drive to work. That's fantastic. Oh, good. Didn't realize we were on Spotify. We are everywhere. Had, uh, Be surprised uh, where you find us. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have a lot of questions because it's it's interesting how different the Japanese real estate market is from the you know American real estate market. Uh, even just the basic assumptions that you make are are different. Like. I know you've mentioned in Japan, you know, the land appreciates, but the property itself depreciates. Mm-hmm. Well, here in the U.S., like property is a huge part of people's net worth. That's huge for retirement, everything. It's it's a uh, like a very important investment. Well, when uh, for you most Americans, where nobody retires, like you don't you don't. Need to <laughs> 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 so. Uh, should I just I jump it. into the questions, Ziv, or? Yeah, yeah, go for your life, man. All right, let me see if I can. All right, I'll start with question one here. Uh, both Japan's low birth rate and aging population seem like they'll have a, a negative impact on real estate demand in the future. How should investors view this problem, and what steps uh, are Japan taking to alleviate this impending population crisis? Okay, well, investment-wise, let, let's leave the uh, last part of the uh, the last question out of it because I have no idea what Japan is doing about it personally. Does anybody else know what Japan is doing about the uh, population decline? Any they, policies? Uh, They're doing a bunch of a bunch of stuff, but none of it. It's all yeah. misaligned with the needs. So yeah, they are trying to encourage right now. Like uh, you know, giving little extra uh, money here and there for families with children. <laughs> They are trying to um, Let me help. comment on that. That's you're just talking about the <laughs> end per kid thing. Emil doesn't like it when we go off topic, but th- this is important, man. No, 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 no. It's a very relevant question, right? Um, I just, I, it's not my expertise to speak to it. Yeah. So there, Blanca, you're talking about the million in per per kid thing. No, even even like for example, uh, they are like I don't know how Tokyo, but but Tokyo is also encouraging families they are giving them a little extra money here and there if you apply we now even got a paper something like that they will give us an extra incentive um like a support for gas costs having a child basically yeah they've also said that they'll like alleviate um or reduce or maybe eliminate um what student debt which i didn't even know was that big of an issue in in japan (laughs) in the first place it's not a big, I don't think it's a big issue because most families are very uh, used to having a, having a savings account for children's studies. Mm-hmm. And it's so common here, most families really does have it, either the parents pay for it or the grandparents pay for it. A lot of children's expenses in Japan is still covered by the grandparents, which is, which is just crazy to me, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But also... Uh, what I've heard now, and that that it's kind of ridiculous, but still, what it is is they are trying to encourage 
mothers or support mothers to kind of get an extra education or like uh you know requalify during their child stay so they can actually go back to work because the biggest issue the generations younger than us i think is having is that the women are not really supported to go back to work and then they will tell them that their experience is outdated because they were home for so long this i wonder that. if education will actually change anything though i know some very highly educated women in japan that have just abandoned any hope of a career and it's not because of lack of education it was oh. a lot of but but i think yes like the, the sorry to to cycle back to your question yeah. michael the, to, a, um, but they are trying but they are trying from a little bit of a <clears throat> from the wrong places so we still don't know we still don't know where this is going to go i believe this to you i mean it has to be to address it really it has to be either an increase in birth rate or an increase in immigration right there's no other way to right. battle a, a declining population so that the policies the are kind of i don't know i'd call them half-hearted or maybe they're just you know out of ignorance on what would actually work but let's assume that that's not going to happen so what is happening and has been happening for the last let's say 10 15 years is that the smaller townships and the smaller villages are declining in population but a lot of that means that they are just conglomerating into the bigger metropolitan centers right so if you look at um the big cities Sapporo Osaka Tokyo Nagoya um Yokohama Fukuoka they're all gaining in population um i don't think it's organic anywhere except fukuoka maybe so no, it's not, not actually people having more babies than people yeah, you're die. talking about just, just like the guppe is exactly is, right but and, considering the size of the population in japan that's a trend that's going to keep the cities growing for at least another 10-15 years as it runs its course and that's really for me as an investor i think most of our clients as well we don't think I mean, obviously, it's a long-term commitment and investment, but we don't think much beyond five or ten years because everything changes, right? Policies, macro, <laughs> macroeconomic factors, microeconomic factors. We have no idea what's going to happen in five, ten years. There might be a policy in place. The trend of the population decline might reverse or slow down. It might not. But if we've got five or ten years of increasing population, which means a stable tenant base, for me as an investor, that's enough. But I don't know if other people have other views on that. I'm going to add to that. So, yeah, I I agree sort of what you said, Ziv. Um, so as I've got three kids, so I think I'm, I'm doing my my part for the population. Good job, least. Emil. <laughs> but that said, the... Yeah, so you're, you are right. I think, though, in... Although right now, the attempts the government are making seem to be not very successful. I think just last year was the lowest birth rate on record yeah it was like eight hundred thousand or something yeah yeah less than a million right yeah crazy uh, so it's it is it is very low in terms of birth rate japan as little uh, as little faith as i have then they're eventually going to have to start doing something they're doing something already but when it really becomes more and more of a real impact that's when you know they're gonna have to do something more significant the big one which i feel they're trying to avoid is immigration yeah mm -hmm. right but they're not just going to dwindle away and just see this and eventually we're on a population of 20 million 10 million 10 million like that's something will happen before that to resolve it right it's not just going to be a catastrophic decline and no one 
does anything. I feel something will get done. So that's why uh, for me, Kishinsan's the first one that's actually at least talking about it with any sense of distress that I've seen in a while, Prime Minister-wise, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I got so, I got the impression that Kishida had like just like there's like a knee jerk just like freak out kind of thing like oh my god we're not having any children like we're gonna die <laughs> we do I did I, I did see one one um uh one initiative which was to give dating like you know teaching teaching men how to have uh, be better daters or to have more romance so I thought that was quite amusing so that is interesting. I mean, online. going there is a whole that's a whole other podcast whole, so that's beyond yeah. the scope of what we're doing socializing and yeah, yeah romant- mm. romanticizing is um, well, but yeah, I mean, so like but back to the question right how does this affect real estate I mean exactly I was just about to bring it back yeah probably imagine what I'm gonna say with Akia right in rural areas is fact of the matter is they dropped the ball, right? And legally speaking, anybody anywhere in the world can buy property. And management is another issue. We can talk about that later. But the fact is that Japan's kind of on sale. And Japan Inc. itself doesn't do <laughs> shit about it, right? Yeah. And so from my perspective, the, the Akia thing and the cheap-ass abandoned stuff is Jesus Christ, come on over, like buy that and yeah. you can buy that and you can buy that and just buy it up, right? And that's that also potentially affects immigration as well. And and you see there are some, some people doing some interesting things and I don't know that we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but there is a very large international school. Actually, there's a few international schools that are, that are setting up in yep. slightly rural yes. areas and yep. then there is also like if you look at the big one which is harrow which basically brought up a whole big swath of land up in um uh morioka area like um, oh really i don't yeah, know and about they've, the op- they've opened up this school which is like very very high end um it's like nine million yen a year for full board and and um and tuition and they're really going after the the very high-end moneyed um asian billionaires um so coming in from china coming in from singapore and they're really trying to you know because the land was cheap up in um up in that uh, up in that oh, area yeah, Iwate is like up yeah. in Iwata it's Iwata is just dirt cheap but that what they've done is they've 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 brought a brand over they've brought a brand which has a very high um high international you know um you know association of like high quality education and they've put a product in in the middle of nowhere but they're mm-hmm. offering golf they're offering the kids can go skiing in their you know yeah, at their lunch times and they're... and they're offering they're offering some <laughs> some very wealthy people a, a very good opportunity and they've done they've come in and done it for next to nothing mm-hmm. so but it, investment you know, wise i mean those kind of projects whether it's a guest house or something more creative like matt was showing at the seminar last month yes um they're not passive investments right you can't passively invest for rental income in the japanese countryside you're always going to be hands-on right yeah 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 so Mm. which i think honestly and again kind of like personally speaking i think is a good thing because another issue that japan has right now is for lack of a better term like brain rot and so when you have when you have these active not passive invest like you literally have to go and you got to pay attention to it and you got to engage and like learn as you go kind of stuff that's a really good business yeah. of, that's a good way to up kind of the um like the intellectual power of the nation 
Yeah. Michael, sorry, we can riff for days on end, but yes. <laughs> if you get other no. questions, we can get to them then. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm uh I'm just thinking to myself here. So uh to to Matt, really. So so if it, it seems like the the answer you have to my question is most people are starting to gravitate towards cities and out of uh like the villages, like the countryside. I've been for a while, mostly yeah. yes. Most and so, outliers, but yeah, the trend is. <laughs> and so that's kind of keeping up the population within the city. So that keeps the demand high. Well, right. Think about it this way. The, the, the population as Ziv was talking about. So the word that I said was, which is like, what do you call that? Um, what, like acquired centralizing stuff. And so one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that affects the positive trend in populations for metro areas is not necessarily that they're, for example, having more kids or more people are moving. It's they're acquiring more municipalities. Yes. That the city itself is geographically becoming larger, which means that they're scooping up populations from erstwhile separate municipalities, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it, it looks like they're. I mean, in a in a sense, they definitely are growing, but it's not like it's not necessarily the case that it's not real growth. Like when yeah. we look at the uh, population consensus, which we do every five years when it comes out, the first page is all double growth uh, prefectures and cities in double digits, like fifteen percent up, twenty percent up, thirty percent up. That's not real growth. It's the city limits are being changed on paper yeah. to include those little townships. So now suddenly Nagoya is bigger. It's not really bigger. And like, like um, uh, Tracy, you were talking about Morioka and Iwate. I used to live in Miyako. Miyako, I believe, is the largest municipality in Japan because they keep acquiring more and more and more uh, previously separate municipalities. It's mad. It's yeah. like it's like a quarter of the size of the entire prefecture or something. They do this because they need to provide infrastructures that local smaller municipalities just can't provide anymore with lack of population and funding. So if suddenly it's not uh, Iwate, it's suddenly it's Nagoya providing sewage and water, then it makes it easier logistically for them to be able to do that. But it's not real growth. So... The real growth that you see, aside from a few very small places, well, Fukuoka City and Fukui City, I know, are growing organically. People are actually having babies there for some reason. Um, but other cities, it's just... warm weather um, you got down there. Can, <laughs> can, I, can I just bring it back, though, to, and I think to, to close the loop of the, the question that... that um, that Michael asked was about the real estate and, and Ziv brought it up that, that these investments are, they're not passive. Um, and, but they make it possible, um, you know, that, the uh, the cheaper real estate make it possible for you to, for your business to, um, come in at a, at a, at a lower price, um, but use the, uh, but be able to create a business and a bit and like create your own, um, infrastructure and create your own, um, profits. Um, by having a you know a lower buy-in cost so um, if you're looking to come in as a real estate investor and just say well you know the land's going to hold its value and the, and the property is going to you know appreciate like you would do in another country that you've got to throw that idea out of the window because you're not going to have a passive um, growth just by by buying a patch of dirt or you know some some bricks and mortar you're not gonna you're not going to have that sort of growth 
uh, um, passively. You've got to be able to use that investment as a way to make money, either cash flow, short-term rentals, long, whatever it is, um, have another plan for that. So yeah, I guess got, I just wanted to close that. Build, right? I mean, that's the thing. You can't just throw some money and expect more money to come back. Exactly. Yeah. You got to go like, it's like you're an artist, you know, get your palette and start painting on whatever you bought. You can't just sit there and expect it to, you know, do it itself. So I want to, that was very like creative. I want to go on a bit of a tangent with this like investment stuff. What I'm getting a bit now is, um, you know, uh, Americans in particular, anyone with US dollar savings, um, you know, would hit to, I had one guy buy when it was 150 yen to the US dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And he sent over a lot of cash and bought an apartment here. He goes, it's just, it's a good deal. Although the apartment was in Setagayaku, um, like, you know, what would have been about $100,000 um, two years ago cost him 75,000 US equivalent, yeah. right? And right. it gets like a 70, like it's like a, a 6% return of five, five and a half. It's like, it's just a small one room apartment. Um, what was it like? I think like maybe a five, five and a bit percent return, um, is the the yield. But what he's happy now is he bought at one fifty at when it was one hundred and fifty yen. Now the do- the yen to the dollar is one hundred and thirty three yen, right? Mm-hmm. So just now already he's up some almost you know what eight or ten percent because of right. the exchange. Um, and a lot of people are thinking, look, this one even at one thirty three, what it is now is a ridiculously um good rate if you buy now at this rate it, it's at the upper end of what the dollar yen or what the us dollar kind of is like historically so buying now the expectation is if there is any change likely in the long term the yen's going to be stronger okay because it generally has been so that's where kind of there's also going to be value right their investment now, but they're buying it cheap, just from the exchange sort of readjusting is going to make the difference. And right now, the volatility with the exchange rate has been because of the US just inflation because of the war led, um, you know, largely war and, and, you know, commodity prices and inflation, trying to control inflation, they're just banging on the interest rate, boom, 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 increase, increase, increase. That's not sustainable. And that's not really going to continue happening. Right. Um, so long term, when there's an readjustment, what they bought at 130, 140 yen to the dollar is now when the dollar is 100 to 100, so $1 to 100 or $1 to 110, their asset that they bought is going to be worth more in terms of their relative US dollar. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's also a big yeah, thing I always. think investors are, are considering now realistically. Yeah, and that, that was a question I had, uh, especially for, for Ziv, because Ziv, you, you manage the bank accounts. Uh, for Americans, Australians, everyone who does business with you, right? Yep. So you would see the transfers, like in, in a case like this, where I don't know USD are valued, you know, is valued so much higher than yen historically, right now. Um, you, you, I mean, would you see an influx of American dollars? Yeah. So what normally happens with definitely with our engaged customers who have been with us for a while, but also with a lot of new customers is um, when people decide to invest in any foreign country, Japan just being in our case, 
they've already zeroed in on the geographical location. They know that they're going to be investing in this country. They don't know the exact property, the exact city, the exact asset that they're going, but they do know their budget and they do know where they're going to invest. So when these trends happen, when the US dollar is suddenly worth a lot more yen, they just transfer funds over to us, or if they have an account in Japan, into their account in Japan, transfer them into yens, and then just sit on them until the right property comes along. And mm -hmm. similarly, once they've accrued the rental income, and again, these are all investors, so they're not they're not going to make the rookie mistake of investing with money they need back to pay their grocery bill or a mortgage back home, right? They they leave the money here until the rates swing the other way, and then they withdraw their rental income back home, making another little profit on that as well, right? So as long as you've got liquid cash in both countries, it's always going to be a case of profiting from the exchange rate rather than being stung by them. So I, I know you can't give any any like uh, real figures, but um, how much would you say in annual return that that typically adds? Is there is there a number? Has anybody ever crunched the data on that? Um, if you're patient and you're again liquid and not in a hurry to transfer funds either way, I can say that for us it's always worked out to be a lot more than whatever you'd get at a bank term deposit account or even a more flexible product, right? So if I can get during the good times, I could get from Australia maybe somewhere between two to three and a half percent in a fixed term deposit. If I just leave it there and lock it in for six months or a year or two years or whatnot, it always paid off a lot more to keep the cash liquid so that we can capitalize on those little peaks in exchange rates, right? So rather than lock it in for two or three percent, we always found that we made at least four or five up to maybe eight percent on these little peaks. If we just had money liquid that we could transfer across. Okay, gotcha. It sounds like um, a full-time job, Ziv, watching that. <laughs> oh, my well, God. We're constantly keeping track of it because of our customers, right? All of our customers are, not all of them, but most of them are overseas. So it's always up to us to let them know that, hey, there's a peak this way yeah. or that way. If you were considering a purchase or you're considering to withdraw your rental income, now's a good time to do that because it's the highest we've seen it in the last two years or five years or like it's now in 10 years. That's, right? that's a nice part of your, so that's why people pay you the big bucks, right? Is because you do that, you do that job for them, right? That's, that's really, that's really handy. It, it's not in the official job description, but we do, yeah. So you you basically use real estate to be a, like a, a forex manager. <laughs> um, well, we also if they happen to work with our recommended partnered forex manager, we do get a commission from the forex company as well. Ooh, but it's yes. it's definitely useful for me to know when the Australian dollar or the US dollar or whatever I have put aside. If I know there's a peak, then definitely while I'm emailing customers, I'll also remit some some of our liquid funds over to Japanese yen as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as, as somewhat of a tangent on that, but still on the point, I find rather than remitting, so um, if you have a multi-currency account, for example, uh, um, uh, well, that Citibank, uh, Prestia, yeah. have so, so multi-currency yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you don't actually have to remit. Overseas remittance is quite expensive mm -hmm. and you're getting not the best, exchange rate as always because you have to go through an fx company and there's some other fees involved um if you have just a multi-currency account you don't actually need to remit overseas and there's no equations like you have okay i got my japanese yen account and there's one million yen in there and within the same account there's an australian or a us dollar oh i think the aussie dollar is cheap i just jump online and okay convert one million yen to australian dollar and i get it at that rate 
and you switch back. Yeah. So it never actually leaves your account. So you can do all those exchanges. Um, and so there's no transfer fee. It's just an exchange rate fee. And even those um, banks often have promotions on for this month, there's uh, reduced um, transact uh, exchange fees instead of charging, you know, like a half a cent in the in the dollar or whatnot, whatever it is. Emil, you'll always uh, find that the um, regardless of international exchange fees, uh, transfer fees, you'll always find that the the rates that the bank give you internally are not nearly as good. It's always two or three into the dollar um, off what a foreign exchange provider will give you. So it, it's definitely not the best way to do that. Yeah, um, you know, have a look at it, um, but it also depends, you know, you can make your assessment at the time, but I think also just literally sending money to the doing the, the full wire transfer versus just within your own account. Um, yeah. Oh, the bigger picture the of where the, where the rate is, is always going to be the one that nets you the biggest profit. I wouldn't worry about how you're exchanging them that much. Just make sure that you're doing it at the right time. Kind of a fascinating strategy, especially if you have like, if you're cash flowing in multiple different countries, multiple different currencies. It is as long as you make sure that you're aware of it, because there's also a lot of people that really get hurt not being aware of it for the first time. They're like, oh, okay, settlement is next week. I'll transfer now. And the yen just took a, di- uh, just took a jump forward or the other way around, right? I need the money back right now. And then they get stung by it. But if you're aware of it and you monitor it, then yeah, you prepare in advance. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home-away-from-home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, if that's the thing, or if you just need somewhere quiet to get away from the world. They offer a variety of options for families, corporate relocations, or even if you're simply transitioning between homes in Tokyo. The properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They come with fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in. Fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know. They're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but longer term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly in a Japanese business hotel. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home, with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, etc. You definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profit, or a holiday home that you want to rent out when you're not using it via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth a visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at sales at realestate.jp. And now back to the podcast. You say that with, with, with what sounds like authorities, Ziv. I'm, I'm, I, need to, <laughs> I need to explore this uh, with further. Okay. Let's, uh, let's, I've let's seen both. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, my next question was going to be, how does the return on investment uh, on vacation properties like ski resorts compare with the return on investment for like regular rental properties, I guess, in like a metropolitan area? Let me slide my screen to the left so Tracy's under the camera because that's going to be her talking now. <laughs> well, the return on investment in terms of purchase price or, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, how much it costs you to set up. I mean, I don't really track. I mean, Ziv is the man who tracks the, the numbers um, from the purchase price with all the closing costs because they can be quite high. Um, you know, once the property has been purchased, then I come along and then I, you know, I do my magic to maximize the profits. So, um, but I don't actually, I don't keep a record of how much that relates to the original startup costs. I just, I just keep it on how much, you know, um, on, on the cash flow to make sure that like month to month, I'm maximizing the profits. Operational, based on the right? Costs. Like from the moment yeah, you're actually. Costs. Yeah, yeah. 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 But we have run comparisons, Tracy and I, and we found out that if you stick to her recommended profile of what a profitable um, yes. short-term stay property is, as long as you follow her guidelines, it can potentially double what you'd get from a long-term tenant. Correct. And and wow. that, that, sweet, that sweet spot is, so there's a lot of properties that you can see that are multi-unit, um, that are one room. So like the 1K, the one, you know, 1DK type size. They, um, the return on those um, is much better for long-term rental because your ongoing costs, your startup costs and your, you know, the, the management costs of, of, um, of doing a one-bedroom is about the same as running a three-bedroom property. But the, in terms of the revenue, the gross revenue, and then, of course, your, the profit that comes out of that is much, much higher for a vacation When you say rentals, that, Tracy, just to, to clarify for people, so what you mean sure. is that the number of visits per check-ins and checkouts, the number of people that you send over to clean, the number of yes. utensils that you buy that you have to replace is very similar, right? Well, yeah, no, the, the, the cost of guest acquisition. So the, the, the amount of time and effort and money that it takes you to, um, to capture a guest right. is pretty much the same um, is with a one-bedroom to a three-bedroom. Um, of course, you know, as soon as you get into the three bedroom, there are slightly higher costs, but they really do level like, you know, it, it's not like in lockstep with um, uh, with uh, the size. So um, there 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 is a you know, the, there is the, the um, economies of scale when you get to that those larger those larger places. So um, and there's just so I'm much sure. more so much more money on a on a big place than a you know than a smaller place because you're you're dealing with a, a, a different ideal guest as well a different guest demographic and anecdotally uh i don't know who which of you saw me dressed as a viking <laughs> i did <laughs> like, like that was that. actually at an abandoned ski resort right. uh well not not fully abandoned the skiing part of it was shut down like the buildings were still standing there they took like the cable cars were like grounded and, and it was really sad it was just like super pathetic the hotel mitch, and I, mitch and I the photographer who did our event we go out to these um haikyo these abandoned places i love taking photos of those places they're well, amazing so the haikyo which is like proper just like wrecked there is no chance in hell that that thing is getting renovated um this was still an operational hotel 
that used to have also an operating ski resort, but that they mismanaged that. So they shut that down. Though the buildings themselves were the structure. Oh, so the hotel is still running. Yeah. I mean, nominally, like they were there, (laughs) but they don't know how to advertise or like do anything. So I'm sure that they're operating at a loss. But well, that goes yeah. back to what we were saying about investing in Inaka is you have to know what you're doing and advertise and market and, and run the place properly, right? Right, right. But I mean, talking about with, you know, return on investment from ski resorts versus the smaller stuff that uh, Tracy works with. Yeah, like scaling stuff up to that level is not a small task. And if you're not prepared to handle it, like you're going to get hit. So those those ski resorts uh, like properties are those just on sale because of COVID or is that just a, a long term trend? Which, it depends help. which area which area you're talking about because like if you're looking at Hakuba, you're looking at Hakuba, you're looking at Nisako, you're looking at Ferrano, they're they're at the top of the market now. Like you know you can't walk into any of those you know under what like a ski lodge there for under five hundred thousand dollars. Half a mil, not, uh, yeah, 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 that's five hundred thousand dollars exactly. So it's, yeah, but you cannot walk into any of those at that cost if you're talking about some of the the other places around Niigata um that that were that they were they were built in the bubble um and they have a very high monthly maintenance fee um yes you can pick up those fairly cheaply that was pre-covid as well though it's more a case it was of pre-covid elderly, as well mm. yeah elderly owners who just don't want to pay the three four hundred bucks a month for a yeah. place they're not using anymore so they'll sell them anywhere between five to twenty five thousand bucks for a unit yeah yeah, yeah renovating some of the some of the skiing resort uh, man, uh skiing resort condos in yuzawa right now and uh it's because so you do get out of the kanto region there you go Yes, yes, we get a little bit out of there, but that's because our clients are actually Tokyo-based. Okay. So the Tokyo-based owners of those, these are their second homes or third homes, you know, respectively. And but they, it's good to know that you're open to uh, out of uh, Kanto Kanagawa jobs, uh, Blanca. Yeah, for special for special occasions, you know, when you know at at, at the special circumstances, devil can meet God. So. They gotta make it worth your while. You get, make, be yeah. my client. make it interesting. Be my client. <laughs> make it interesting for me. I'll come. So yeah, that one and so, you know because a lot of the owners also the previous owners they for example left the country. Uh, and then they realize two, three years later, they are not coming back and they don't want to do the management. All that. Yeah. And as you say, there is a high management fee in those properties. So they end up selling them and it's a good time to buy. Like in those areas, Yuzawa is far cheaper because Hakuba, right now, everybody's going to Hakuba. All the foreigners are buying in Hakuba. So you can't buy in Hakuba, but you can buy in Yuzawa. And so Niigata those... and Nagano and a lot of places, um, yeah. But th- those, if you're buying in a resort, you can't rent them out normally unless, you, you know, some uh, kind of clever you workaround. You can rent it out long term. They usually don't, uh, they usually those like the ones where we are dealing with, they don't allow Airbnb or like short term rentals. You have to have a long term, long term tenants. Which is tough in those areas. That must kill your return, right? Which is, yeah. So if um so I want to sort of speak about my experience. So at the Airbnb sort of peak, I had about 12 properties. So from the investor side, I had about 12, you know, short-term stay properties that I was sort of managing and, and 
like some were I owned, some I subleased. Um, so in terms of actual figures, right? So a small, like one little small rental shack that was like 10, 12 square meter little loft, not far from Shinjuku. Tracy, you've seen it. Um, the rent on that and the monthly fees were about, say, 70, 75,000 yen a month. Wow. I think and for just a little thing, right? Just And when after like sort of just as regular like you know short-term stay on airbnb mostly i was getting after all the expenses probably about say thirty thousand yen to forty thousand yen 20 to forty thousand average of thirty thousand yen per property a month which is not a lot but i had like three apartments in this building i wouldn't do it just for one but i had three apartments so just consider rental arbitrage mm. right if you were in think you're the owner of the building you Rental is say seventy thousand yen a month, um, and short term stay is closer to a hundred thousand yen a month. Okay, short term stay is, you know, just is just on the little one like that is you know forty forty percent fifty percent increase, um, and then the bigger the apartment, like two LDK three LDK, as you know, Tracy says, it's very very real. You rent for you know like it's per square meter. If something a little place is sixty, you're paying one hundred and eighty or two hundred for a two bedroom bigger joint. You know, it's three three times the size, so three times the price. Rentals go by, and even purchase prices often go by square meter sizes, right? You per price per square meter, and it's very linear that sort of increase in price. So, Emil, um, when you did, sorry, yeah. okay. when you were doing that, those Airbnbs, those twelve, was that before uh, the limit on Airbnbs and short term rentals? Uh, it was before, during, and then COVID. and after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and after and so pre pre regulation, it was a massive heyday, right? You had no no limit. Then regulation really stuffed it. I went from twelve to six when the regulations came in because of zoning rules. Some of the zoning areas were you can only do um, uh, Monday, sorry, Friday to Sunday um, yeah. rentals. Not yeah. on the weekend, oh, wow. a lot of them put and, that uh, in. Yeah, yeah. So. In addition to the 100, so 180 days is like a federal level, nationwide regulation on minpaku, on short-term stay. And then each ward can impose their own additional regulations on top. So a lot of them is concern about school kids, school children. Okay, so Shibuya Ward, for example, says you can't operate during the school terms. You can only operate during school holidays. So three times a year, which brings it down to like 80 days. 60 to 80 days a year. Setagayaku, if it's in like a restricted residential area, it's only Friday through to Sunday or I think Saturday to Monday, but basically not when kids are at school. They don't want just tourists bumping around and stuff. So, um, so of course that impacted it severely, but what that change in the, that regulation change meant that people are no longer looking for just Airbnb registrable properties. They're looking for hotel registrable properties because okay? um, you can get a hotel license. So that made investors go, I'm not going to, you know, in the US and Australia and you know, all around the world, I'm just going to buy a place and use Airbnb, short term, like Airbnb it, and I can get a better return. In Japan, the regulations prevented that because, hey, you do that, you only get six months a year, 180 days is limited. So okay, plus they all. locked out, they locked out all of the condominium blocks as part yeah, of the regulation exactly. as well. And then, and then condos as well, for the most part, are restricted from it, right? Um, because you need to, to get the license, you need further sort of stuff. So the properties I had, um, the ones, the six that I kept were either houses 
or I said those three little units that were one owner owned the entire building and he gave me permission because yeah. initially when I rented it, it was I had permission to use it for Airbnb from him. So when the regulation came in and said, you want to apply, you need to show us your permission from the owner. Or the I owner that, union in case of a co-owner. Yeah. And Emil, and Emil how much did it cost you to get the license? Because you did you do that yourself or did you get yeah, a lawyer to do it? I paid a lawyer to do it. It was about 100 to 150,000 yen per property. Per plus, property plus a, the... Plus some fire stuff and things. Look, there's costs, but look, if you go in to do a property, like it's if that's your intention, you know, you, you got to spend money to, to make it work, right? So that's just part of the setup cost. But the return on it could be quite good. Now, the return on Airbnb, and he, here's the problem with short-term stay, I think from an investment point of view. If you, you want to come in as an investor, you, you don't have a clear option like you do in other countries where, I can get a property and it's either going to be standard lease or short-term stay. And then you decide with a management company and all the costs, what's going to get me a better, better return? Because generally you can compare the same property. Do I do regular lease or short-term stay? And often short-term stay comes up better. However, in Japan or, in, you know, and it's, you can't, it's not the same property. If you're choosing a property for short-term stay, you have a very limited pool of properties. Very, very limited, right? Um, for, and for, arbit for arbitrage, definitely. For arbitrage, definitely. Um, arbitrage for meaning sublease, basically, right? So you're renting from the owner and you're renting out short-term. Are you talking yeah, purchase? If, yeah, but if, for, for both. For both. If, I, if you want to purchase a property to use for short-term stay, Right. Essentially, you want to have one that's going to be either Airbnb license, like short mean public licensing, ideally hotel license. Hotel license, one hundred percent hotel yeah, license. Right. Yeah. So, but the ones that are permitted to get hotel license are really very few. Whereas, if you want to go for standard lease, you you can go for any property, any listing. I can pull up on the whole basically national database. You can get it as a standard lease property. Hold on, I want one that's I can also turn into a hotel. All right, that's what one percent, two percent, whatever. Like, well, yeah, I have no idea, but it's it's a small, small fraction, right? They're, so they're now your options are, are total. They are definitely unicorns, but let me just let me just say that it is for if you get a good like if you get a good one that it far and away out you know um, blows blows any sort of ROI on like long term long term lease for sure. But it's yeah. hard work. So not just hard work to oh, manage them. It's not just being running a business. Even the, during the purchase and finding the right one, and it's hard work. It's a lot more hands-on. Yeah. Sorry That's to interrupt, Emil. You were you were on a roll. Go for it. Oh yeah. No, you know. So no, but you're, you're definitely right. So it depends on how willing you are to search out for the property, right? So if you want one, look, I just want one that I kind of have a good idea of what the return is going to be, and I need it to be pretty pretty consistent which is just without the and I, I don't want to deal with seasonality right i just want to get it and it kind of pays you know a, a fixed kind of thing long term and just minimal headache and that's actually easier i think to scale as well if you want to continue purchasing more and more if you can right. afford to do that because it lends itself to passive management yeah it's, it's easier once you have you got it like versus hey let's go and try to find unicorns you know, if someone comes up to me and says, I want this unicorn, so I can't, like, um, I just, that's, it's too, it's quite difficult to find.
You have to be for, passionate uh, about it, like Tracy is. I, yeah, <laughs> I, it's not like to, for, yeah, to, from I'm, the purpose listen, side. Listening purpose to this, side. I'm, I'm just well, yeah. Do your research, and then if you don't find the thing that you're looking for, then don't do it. <laughs> yeah. so it depends on your your kind of uh, approach, but you don't. It's not as easy in Japan to do it. You you can't say any property I have. We, should I choose standard lease or short-term lease, uh, short, short-term rentals? Because yeah, the case. You, can't, you can't do that. Short-term yeah. rentals are very, very few. Um, yeah, what, well, doing it well is hard, though. I just want to ju- jump in as well. I think in the U.S. there's a term going around at the moment called the Airbnb bust, and that was a whole bunch of people who got into the market during COVID when the demand for short-term rentals was really high domestically in the US and people were like just buying everything. They were like throwing throwing a designer at it, making it very generic, very pretty. Um, and, they were, and it was just passive income for them. And now the market is equalizing and people are going, oh shit, I, you know, pardon me. <laughs> it's like, it's really hard because um, you know, you actually, it's not, it's not a passive job. Short-term rentals, yes, the money is there, but it's not a passive job. So I guess I, you know, if you're looking for a passive place to put your money and grow, short-term rentals are not it. Um, but, and, and that's in any country, that's in the US and in, and in Japan. Mm. Mm. All right, um, next question. Yeah, yeah, this, this feeds well into the, to the next. Um, I, I think, Ziv, you've mentioned uh, in, in the past that the rental like ROIs are not as attractive now as they were in like 2017, for example. Um, what caused that change? And and do you think, um, you know, it, the, the rental returns will keep on going down or will they kind of adjust back up? Um, so the future is hard to predict, but if it's anything like the past, the reason they went down is because there's um japan is a popular attractive destination and became more and more attractive as tourism numbers grew and we had the um all of the international events that were announced here so interest in japan sorry olympics yeah Yeah. i was avoiding saying that (laughs) so interest Uh in japan grew and also when there's crisis in the world japan and the yen are always considered to be safe and stable so a lot of money was coming into japan and blowing up in Tokyo and Osaka as it always does but also in other places that were a bit less familiar before like Fukuoka, Nagoya, um, Yokohama and Kobe and so forth but the economy in Japan being what it is all of this speculative property price kind of inflation I don't want to say bubble has nothing to do with cost of living and salaries right so if tenants are still not making higher salaries then rents cannot go up so in this gap between property prices going up and rents not going up is where yield shrunk. And that's if that's going away or not is anyone's guess, but I don't see changing in... I mean, Tokyo and Osaka are now at pre-bubble levels, or Osaka is almost <clears throat> there. Tokyo is already past that. So I guess there's a ceiling on how, how much further it will compress, but whether there's going to be a price drop and it'll go yield will go up again i wouldn't count on that now why did prices of real estate go go up while uh wages didn't like what, why aren't they in lockstep it's a speculative market and there's a lot of demand for the very popular areas and um, very little demand in other areas of the country so 
prices haven't gone up in um you know that much in kumamoto or in rural chiba prefecture but tokyo osaka fukuoka where people want to live prices just keep going up and also international investment because there's no there's no cap or limit on international investment into japan it's freehold for everyone so international investors are always speculative in nature so they keep buying in you know attractive locations because their money is not dependent on salary and so forth they've got the capital to do it so they keep doing it and that keeps blowing prices up there's um i mean there's one more big thing is low interest rates so yeah. that's what I, I i deal in personal like largely in personal homes so people that long-term residents that want to buy their own place so just um last weekend right we we sold those one property it's a tower mansion in shinjuku right um and it's on the the 19th or 20th floor it was priced at 95 million yen we negotiated down to like 92 and a half fully renovated apartment um like 60 square meters 59 square meters nice 2ldk with a view of both sky tree and tokyo tower out the same window like at the living room so it was there yeah, fantastic property built in 2002 right so it's a 21 year old property and during the documentation like it's we looked at the the price and in one of the documents it said that it had the plans for the property that was that entire building and some of the properties that were still available for sale at the time and their prices okay and they range from for the smallest one was 35 million yen up to 59 million yen for the most expensive with the biggest one which is like what we were getting so 20 years ago that apartment was to say 59 million yen and now 20 years later it is uh 92 and a half million double the price that's about, in central fukuoka as well it had about a 10 million yen like 12 10 to 12 million yen worth like full gutted <laughs> renovation for the entire thing so let's say the same 20 um what's called the same unrenovated equivalent would have been about 80 million or 75 million still that's almost a 50 percent increase in value from the original purchase price so we talk about properties depreciating. Oh, why do properties depreciate? Is it worth investing if the property is just going to depreciate? Um, by accounting rules, we often say the building depreciates. And yes, a newer building, if you have two identical properties side by side, one that's 20 years old versus the brand new one, and everything is the same, the brand new one will demand a premium. But where we are at the market right now is, as Ziv was saying, rents haven't changed so much, but prices have. The price on an old on any on a used property is right now is more than the purchase price. So how much has depreciated? When you talk about depreciation, let's, is it worth investing? Um, prices have been really good. Interest rates. So this client that we got, he got one hundred and five percent financing. So it was like ninety two mil plus um, about I think seven six to seven percent of closing costs, which is what another six million yen um so the 92 and a half and the loan we're getting is like 98.5 million so all the closing costs he's paying about 40 50,000 yen so what's that four five hundred dollars wow. out of pocket and it's all covered by the bank 35 year loan 0.425 percent is the interest rate oh my gosh okay so um <laughs> who wouldn't buy to, to answer and, your and, question <laughs> yeah and that and so the rental of this apartment if you were to rent it out right we'll get about 300 to 320,000 yen a month right now the cost on that loan um i pull up actually you know i'll just pull up the pricing sort of simulation that we that we did for him 
And on a 99 million yen loan for that is 255,000 yen a month. Um, and most of that, like 85% of that is principal and only about 10 to 15% is interest, right? With those low interest rates. Management fees, 16,000, repair fund fees, 19, plus internet is 2,000. His total monthly outgoing cost is 295,000 yen a month for a property that will cost more than that to rent or about that. So even if he just rents it out and it's break even, he stands back in 35 years, he owns a 90 million yen property, whatever it's valued at the time, outright. For free. Like it's just too, wow. like it's so much better to own a property. And with these low interest rates, it just makes complete sense over renting that um, that's also like this, what, maybe 15 years now, the interest rate has, the variable interest rate hasn't changed. That's variable. It's, it's been the same for 13 to 15 years, I think. Um, it's, but it's because of everything we've discussed so far, because of the way the population is still, <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately, moving towards the centers of big cities. So you're only seeing these stable and rising prices in, the, in those attractive locations where there are still people willing to buy because this is where they have to or want to live. You're not seeing that anywhere that's not as popular where prices are still at, at very, yeah. very, very, very low levels, right? And the, the other thing, Ziv, is um, foreign investors can't get those mortgages, right? Correct. Mm. Why well, is I mean, that? Big, big institutional high net worth <laughs> investors can, um, but um, you and I and um, other people who don't have residency in Japan without very high salaries or very high companies behind them cannot. That's because banks in Japan are conservative, I guess. I don't know. Well, also, though, it, to be fair to the banks, I'm going to say it, they make on, on a half a percent interest over 35 years, they only make about 15% of the loan. You borrow a million dollars, after 35 years, they've only made 115 grand. You've paid back 1.15 million. That's yeah. one litigation case against somebody in Singapore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's there's, there's just so little, like it's these are only for home loans for very stable local residents, right? Who are employed. Even if you're a Japanese citizen and you're not employed well, you're doing part-time work, you've only been in a company for three months. Like in Australia, three months of pay slips, you get a loan anywhere. <laughs> Equivalent to someone who's been working at the same company for a decade. In yeah. Japan, no. Three months of pay statements. What is this nonsense? No, no, no. We want to see, you know, one, two, three years worth of pay statements at the same company. You've got to be a low risk, stable, just like, you know, like a, you know, almost like an MPC. <laughs> um, yeah. Just, you know, to, to be able to get these kind of loans. Um, and even and if you want to go to an investment loan, even for a local employed resident, it's going to be 20% deposit and interest rates are closer to 2%. Um, what we get now, there are some banks that, and we're working with clients now that are actually attracted to that idea is if you're a foreign res, like you're not resident, straight up Americans in America, um, you establish a company in Japan and open a bank account and you can get a mortgage, an investment mortgage for investment property. They assess the value of the property. And right now they give about 50 to 60% ratio. So let's say it's a million dollar property. They'll give you about, you know, 60 million yen for it you put down the rest and the interest rate is about 2.8 percent um for that so 
Financing is available, not nearly as attractive as these other great deals, but there is something there that, you know, if an investor's got, you know, uh, half a million dollars in the US, they can either buy a half a million dollar property cash, or they can leverage and get, you know, um, a, a $1 million property equivalent in, in Japan. And some of these properties, when you're looking at an entire building, you're going to be getting more than the 2.8% rental yield. The only right. thing to watch out there for, though, is that just the fact that you have a company in Japan means that you're signing up for three to 4,000 bucks a year in annual company upkeep costs, whether it's accounting, bookkeeping, minimum corporate tax, what have you. So you just want to make sure that whatever it is you're borrowing, whatever it is it's netting you is actually worth, like if you're paying 20% of your income just to upkeep the company because you had to get it just to get the mortgage, it's maybe not such a... So it, that usually is a good strategy if you're looking at assets that are a million dollars and over. I yeah, wouldn't go not, really plus, yeah. not yeah. a small unit, like not a hundred thousand dollar unit. No. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, just to make sure, just to mm-hmm. just okay. to make sure here, if if you're me, if you're just an American, uh, no ties to Japan, but you want to buy in Japan, um, but you want a mortgage, what are your steps? What do you do? So the process we're doing have, right now have first of all have three hundred, right. four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in cash because they'll only give you up to 50, 60 percent. Um, so you need to have that much to make it worth your while to invest here. And if you have that much, you can already buy a small building um, in outright cash in a lot of places. So it, it doesn't always make the best financial sense. So that 400, 300 or 400, is that all assets or straight cash? cash which you need to put down as a deposit they'll give you the rest of the money so uh, do you want me to walk you through the the, this process right so you're in the us you you have a uh, scrivener establish a company in japan for you right he be your uh your um your uh given the power of attorney they establish with the corporation that might cost 300,000 yen and then that corporation needs to open a bank account which seems to be the big challenge right now because it's hard for a a newly established company to open a bank account. Banks are very strict. And even for local residents, let alone when the director is a foreign resident. So there's some sort of work. Have the scrivener scrivener be a director in the company, open the bank account, and then they remove themselves from from the directorship and it's exclusively yours. And that's like an extra 100 or 200,000 yen for that service. But now you have a company with a bank account. And then the lender, then you find the property that you want. We usually do it in tandem with you found the property. We discuss with the bank. They say, yes, we'll loan, you know, it's a um, 100 million yen property. We'll give you 60 million yen or 50 million yen. Okay, great. You need to have, let's say 60 million. You need to have the remaining 40 million cash to pay the difference in the for the property price. Plus about another ten percent to cover yeah, closing. I gotta, I gotta jump, so continue, but I gotta, I gotta go on another call. Thanks, Matt. Later. Thanks, Thanks, Matt. Later. And then, so you have the corporation established, the load is approved. You discuss with the seller and make the offer. They agree. The the scrivener, whoever you give the power of attorney, can sign the contracts on your behalf, right? And they do the title transfer, all the fund. You agree on a settlement date. Then the rest is like your ordinary um, purchase. The loan, the bank will give your company the 60 million yen. You have your other 40 or 50 million yen, which is almost half a million dollars in the account ready. 
And then you transfer one, on settlement day, 100 million yen to the seller and you pay the 10% goes to the other fees, like our agency fee, um, taxes, scrivener costs, costs to the uh, to the bank for their loan establishment costs, et cetera. That all gets sort of done. And then you own the title. And if the building is already rented, tenanted, then you can either keep it with the current property manager or you can find your own separate property manager to take over. But just whatever's getting rented, just now the monthly rent comes into your accounts rather than, yeah, that's that's the process. Is Was that clear? Yeah, that was clear. Thank you. Wow, that is complex. So, so Ziv, that's where you step in, right? You, you handle- Well, we can do all of this um, on your behalf, yes. Um, but if you're dealing with the lender that uh, Emil is talking about, then they provide most of the services in English. And if you're looking for a property in and around Tokyo, which I think Emil is the only locations they'll lend for, right? Central Tokyo? Tokyo, Yokohama, yeah. And and even then more bigger budget, like, you know, at least half a million dollars upwards. But again, to make, to justify the extra costs and what, you know, what Ziv was saying about the ongoing annual sort of just corporate management fees, you'd want to also... Um, consider whether like, you know, a bigger value, like more like closer to a million dollar equivalent, hundred million yen, you, you can justify it. $2,000 a year is is a small amount. Like a property we're looking at, that's 120 million yen or so, 130 Still million. be about 10% of your um, gross revenue, I think. Well, no, no. Um, oh, no, no. It's like that gets about, I think, uh, 7 million yen rental yield a year. Yeah. So it's like between five and 6%. Yeah. For a property so yeah it's uh you know it, if you're only getting a, a 200 mil, a 20 million yen property two hundred thousand dollars paying two thousand dollars a year it's like oh that's the cost is not uh, on just it's not worth yeah so in if you're dealing specifically with this type of loan and this type of bank then you'll be going for most likely tokyo-ish properties in which case you don't need, normally you wouldn't need somebody like us. I mean, you might need us as consultants, but there are plenty of English speaking professionals in the area who can serve you there. Yes. <laughs> Seems like a fundamentally different metric there. Um, because I, I think I think you've said in the past that uh, Japanese uh, like citizens and residents get, is it seven times their annual income? Yeah, seven times. In, in total mortgage? seven to eight, whereas mm -hmm. foreign investors, it's based off of cash, like in a bank account? Uh, well, they, no, because it also depends on the property, right? So it's what's the- The cash in the bank account, maybe that's confusing. The cash in the bank account is because, not because you're a foreigner, it's because it's an investment loan. So they're not going to give you a hundred percent they're not going to pay everything, including purchase costs. You will have to put some of that down in cash because it's an investment loan. It's not nothing to do with residency, though. Gotcha. Okay. Here it's like a twenty percent um, for like an investment property versus a regular like live-in property, which is going to be zero percent, right? No, no money out of pocket for a live-in. Yeah, it's it's usually like five percent, really. Yeah, but. Yeah, so the, like you, you also the right question. So you've been paying attention and I'll just explain how there's three types of loans and these are how they kind of differ. One is personal home loan, 
for local resident, you can get 100% financing, 105% closing costs as well. Um, the other, the next one is that's yeah, you know, basically the no money down equivalent, um, and that's a you know half a percent interest rate. The next one is investment loan for an individual, which I'll still say, okay, how much can you borrow based on your income, and we'll let you buy an investment loan or a second property, right? That's also how it works. But then if you have a corporation or if you as an individual, your business is investing in properties and your business is rent is you are your business is rental revenue that's how you operate um so in the case of the foreign investor and same if a a local person who has a company and that company is a real estate investment business what they look at now is not your income it's what's the investment your property what is the actual rental that it gets can the rental meet the mortgage repayments and loan terms are often different. It's not 35 years, it's 20 to 25 years. So they now value the property and say, oh, we assess the property at being 100 million yen. We're going to give you 60% of that. So we're going to give you 60 million. You need cash to pay the difference. Without it, well, 60 million yen can't get you the property. That's why you need cash. If they don't use the cash as an assessment of how much you can borrow. They use the property as a... to as a base and as say, a hey, cash how generator yeah how much do we assess this property at then it's at you know we give you 60 percent of that right and then you need to con- contribute the rest because okay. they know if, if, if it falls apart they can sell it and guess what at 40 percent, like they just need to get their 60 percent out of it <clears throat> so that's they're, they're very very safe that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So I hope that clarifies the, the the difference in those different approaches for financing. Now, if you've been following this podcast for a while, and in particular our JREP sessions, you're probably more than familiar with Blanca Kobayashi of Arc Reform. They're a bilingual renovation company serving clients in the Kanagawa and Kanto area. So Tokyo, Chiba, Saitama, Kawasaki, Yokohama. They can handle simple, small-scale projects as well as full house renovations, and they will work with you on the perfect design for your dream family home. But not only homes, Arc Reform also handle commercial property renovations, offices, restaurants, bars, shops, you name it, from traditional classics to the latest trends in interior design and renovations. So you want to email them for a free consultation and quote at info at arcreform.com. That's A-R-K reform, all one word, dot com. And give your home or commercial space the love and care that it deserves. Yeah, if, if you can get money so cheaply as a Japanese citizen, Especially with the properties cash flowing like they do, you must have a lot of like big real estate investors. No, no, because it, it doesn't work like that. It's you, you know, if as an individual, they say, okay, let's say your income is, you know, 100 yen, 10 million yen per year. They'll, you can borrow 70 million yen, say 80 million yen is what you can borrow from the bank. You can borrow that to buy an investment house. Let's say 50 million is for your primary residence. If you want to buy an investment now, you have about 30 million yen of extra borrowing capacity. Okay. And then that's it. You can't, you want to go back and reborrow more. They're not going to give you more. They say, well, you've Only extended after you've your paid off some of it. Yeah. yeah you, you've, you've maximized your borrowing capacity. Right. And also, um, and then when we look back at the, uh, the one, if you have a, an actual corporation, 
that lends based on the valuation of the business, of the valuation of the property, you have to put 40% plus 10% closing costs. That's almost 50% every deal. And right. you can't just reuse that equity and re-leverage again because the markets aren't, don't, like they are going up, but it's not like in the West where, oh, you bought a property for 50 million, for 500,000. Now on paper, let's just reassess it at 800,000. So this 30, 300,000, you can just re uh, leverage that again. So how much cash have you put into the second property? Nothing. The bank has just readjusted your numbers. You've refinanced and you've, you've done that in Japan. No, you want to buy another property. You need the other 40%, 50% cash. Exactly. Mm -hmm. how, how much cash do you have to keep paying 50% of every deal? It sounds wow. rough, but it's it's one of the main reasons that Japan remains a relatively stable and non-speculative market is because you can't do that here. Yeah. So, Michael, I have a question for you. What is your interest in Japanese real estate? I, honestly, I can't tell you. Uh, I, I just came upon the podcast one day and I was like, yeah, I'll just try this out. Uh, I was interested in Really, of the topics <laughs> you could tune into, you just said, I'll try Japanese real estate. Well, it, it was the 4X question that got me into it. I was like, hmm, this is kind of an interesting, uh, I wonder what would happen, you know, if you were trading in multiple different currencies and cash flowing from multiple different, you know, in multiple different currencies. Like, how does yeah. that all interact? And so then I found this really interesting uh, podcast called Japan Real Estate. Uh, <laughs> that talked about so foreign exchange. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. here we are. So you had no particular interest in or familiarity with Japan otherwise? You're not a, a manga, karate lover, rame, foodie, nothing? No, sir. Yeah. Okay. We go far and wide. Interesting. Interesting. So that's, that, that, that's where I think a lot of clients now, like so most of the clients I have that want to purchase in Japan, like the foreign clients, will be they'll have some connection with Japan. Often it's a Japanese spouse. Or they work here, like they come here and they get, they stay here for two, three, four months a year throughout the year. And so, and they've done that for many years, maybe because of work and they just like it here. So they get, there's some established mm -hmm. connection. It's not a raw in, investor, right? Though they lived here in the past. So there's a bit of when they compare investments with other sort of stuff versus, look, you know what? I can actually buy now in this country that I love or this like my second home. Like even for myself, I'm Australian. So, if I want to buy an investment property outside of Japan, I'm going to look at Australia before I look at the US because I know that, right? Similar, There's a similar kind of sort of connection, which is why I think the question to you was, well, what's your connection? Because a lot of, you know, I think even Ziv's clientele, probably they, there was some kind of connection or they've been here. They enjoy the idea of- Oh no, but the investors, not, not necessarily. The investors, a lot of them are like, I mean, I don't know that anyone's ever found us specifically based on foreign exchange, but Investors just tend to look for wherever there are good deals with not many headaches, and then Japan just yeah, Japan you know, comes up. Well. Yeah. Mm. Now, Blanca, Blanca said she has to drop off. So, yep. did you have any specific questions for Blanca? Uh, I do not believe so, but thank you for your time. No worries. But you buy something and you need to fix it, then you'll have a lot of questions for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, no, Blanca. Best of luck. I'll see you guys. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Can you still hear me? My, my uh, screen is frozen. No, yes, yeah, we can we can yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. Mm. Yeah. We can answer a few more questions if you have any. I've still got about 15 yeah, I've got, minutes. I'm actually viewing, I'm viewing a property in a couple of hours, but I've got nothing until then. So.
I actually have two more questions, but I can't access them. (laughs) Oh, your whole screen is frozen, not just us. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Well, you're good. We can see you. Are those the ones from your original uh, email? I can bring them up. Um, Uh, I think he's asked all of those. Oh, it might be from the the YouTube questions, Ziv. Um, Let me go down to... You, do you invest while well, it does that? Uh, Michael, do you invest now in in the US or are you just like you're just curious of where to start? I, I'm trying to strategize right now, Emil. Yeah. That's, how, that's how old my, are you? Like, you're I'm 23. 23. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. So you're that's still bum fluff. You've never even shaved. All right, good stuff. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, so are, sorry, go ahead. Okay, so I, I was gonna say, like, you know, at your age you know i'm 41 now right so i'm you know good two decades ahead of you um yeah i think it i think you're doing the right thing asking sort of relevant questions and thinking okay well what like just getting your mind in the right space about it um finance like how to use finance and leverage in a smart strategic way is very very good um and a big one also is like are you do you work full-time employed yes so a big one that I find is a lot of times what I feel is good strategies, at least for general wealth creation, is your income, your employment income you get, if you're smart with that and how you save that and grow that, that's what you use to put into your investments, right? Right. Because um, you need to start off with some kind of funds, right? So being, okay, how can you strategize your employment situation? In Japan, the easy ways are, well, because you're employed, one, you have some money, but also because you're employed, it's easy to buy. It's easy to get financing. Banks are more friendly to you because you're employed. So that, you know, strategy is, okay, you be a bit strategic and you can start at a manageable scale. Don't try to buy your first big dream home or, or best thing off the bat. So a manageable scale and it, it grows and it just, you, you'll be surprised in a decade's time. Oh, okay. I've got this you know, like quite a, a nice little portfolio and you may flip one and, and get rid of it. And it, it doesn't match your needs that you want to at, at a later stage. But the fact that, you know, your net wealth, right. And your portfolio will be bigger in a decade's time and allow you to do these greater, bigger deals. Like these clients that are buying these, you know, one, $2 million properties that I have, they're all in their fifties, sixties. The kids have sort of moved out. They, right. <laughs> And they just have those kind of funds available. So don't expect to be at that stage early on. I don't think you need to, but you don't need to be at that stage as well to play the game. You can play smaller versions. And that's why like some of the stuff that product that Zib has, which are more in those, you know, someone that's in their early twenties is at a better, is it's more suited. Like something like 20, 30, 50,000, under a hundred grand. Like, oh yeah, okay, actually I can play in this game. That was and actually then, one of um, Michael's question on YouTube. You wrote, um, Michael, in reference to their Retired Japan episode, why do we think that foreign investors should buy Japanese real estate when they could passively invest in a low-cost EDF like uh, VOO or VDI and make their average annual returns of 8-plus percent, right? Yes. I actually just got it up on my end, too, Ziv. Thank you. Yep. Um, and well, the answer is that, that I don't VDI? think... What's that? What was that? What was it? So invest in a what? A low cost? Oh, what? oh, e, uh, low cost ETF. Um, VOO, oh, okay, okay, yeah. VTI. I don't if 
if you're familiar with those, they're uh, like the S&P 500 index. Yeah. Uh, VTI or, is or that a REIT. If you're into real estate, you can invest in a REIT as well. That's also oh, yeah. low cost, it's right? Just, a, just an index fund, yeah. So, I mean, the I don't think that the answer is that, you know, one is better or or you know, not as good as the other. It's more a case of number one, diversity, and number two, your personal preference and your personal um, style, much, right? Like what, what do you time. enjoy doing on a daily and weekly and monthly basis? And what do you feel more, like for, for me personally, I feel very comfortable with real estate because it's not as liquid um, and low cost of entry because it makes me think a lot more before I make rash decisions. Whereas with them, smaller amounts and more liquid types of investments, I think that I would be, I'd be in that rabbit hole of constantly chasing what they're doing and looking at them and panic selling them. And I'm happy that I cannot do that with real estate. Right. And and Michael, I'm I'm in my fifties, and um, so I've got a couple of decades on you as well. Um, but a lesson uh, I don't want to come all parental on you, but the lesson my father told me was like, you know, you never have all your eggs in any one basket so you know you look at me I have I have property I have rental arbitrage I have a share portfolio and I have my own you know private um you know uh um uh what's the word like um uh something I pay into every month um and I've got also got like a retirement so uh, I've got a number of different places where my money is parked um and uh but just getting started is is a good place to good place to go so real estate is just one of your strategies real estate is just one of my strategies yeah Mm -hmm. and it's also a lifestyle choice too again what was it was saying it's a lifestyle choice yeah and Um, you can diversify within a sector too right like for example i I feel very comfortable in real estate, but I'm going to be investing in different countries, different asset classes, different profiles, different types of rentals, right? So I'm going to diversify within my sphere that I'm feeling nice and warm and comfortable in and occasionally be adventurous with learning something new. Emil's pretty good at that, actually, with um, crypto and NFTs and all of these um, amazing alternative asset classes that I keep reading about but never do anything. Yeah, about. I've got crypto. I've got crypto too, so yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, okay, look, I just... A lot of the clients that I work with, like now these, like you know, again these older, wealth, wealthier people, sort of coming in. Oh, the exchange rate is is good. Where do they get the money from? It's not just sat there. It's they've they're, they're liquidating a different asset. Like they go, okay, stock portfolio. They okay, we're going to sell. We want to. We need you know four hundred thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars to buy this investment property. Let's sell our 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 stock. So yeah, like you choose. Say which one is it? A or B? Well. If you only have $5,000, then, yeah, real estate, especially real estate overseas, is going to be a bit of a challenge. But, yeah, ETF, yeah, no, that's that's definitely, that makes complete sense. And mm-hmm. then, like I said, that's what I was saying earlier, because you're young, start getting your, your employment income and any other cash you can get, put it in these to grow it. And then once you get to a stage, you, you have something, you have it to grow in. Then when it's time to buy a property, be it an investment or your own family home, say, you know, you hook up, you get married, have a kid. Oh, okay. I've got these investments that I can sort of pull out from and help me purchase my first home. Right. Yeah. Or for whatever it is that you want to do. So yeah, it's not, it's not just one or the other. It's why choose A versus B or I'll do both. There's, there's mm-hmm. more options as well. Um, and each I one think has if different- anything, you maybe can afford to be a bit more adventurous at your age because 
there's less commitments, right? Like now is the time to take chances that you maybe will not be taking when you've got a mortgage and three kids. Right. Me, that's me. I'm, I'm so like, <laughs> I, I got very limited options. But unfortunately, so, uh, some, some people go into debt to buy like this, you know, pimped out car. And I think that's a bad investment, right? Like It's not you know, even an in, investment, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's taking out a loan to buy something big and blingy and shiny is not a very, like, that's a really short-term, you know, gain in terms of your 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 image, but it's actually going to do nothing for you in the long-term, in your long-term wealth growth. So right. um, that's their choices that you can make now. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. And then just moving on to the last question here, uh, it's about Nippon Bridge. Uh, Ziv. Oh yeah. Uh, I, you didn't. You don't really talk about it that much in the podcast, at least so far. Um, so I don't talk about it much at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that? Yeah, that was just going to be my question. You know, is that intentional or? Uh, it is. Yeah. It's. To- um, I mean. NTI has been at it for a while, 11, almost 12 years now. So I've, I've been talking about it confidently and a lot. But when we started the first couple of years, we just got a couple of test case clients and made sure that we have something to sell before we do. And we're doing the same thing with Nippon Bridge. We definitely offer um, affordable relocation services. That one we've been more vocal about and we have been doing it, um, mainly in Kyushuna, but expanding slowly. But the um, investment uh, franchise businesses and everything else, we've got two clients. One of them's open doors um, and just getting into profitability. And the other one is not even opened their franchise yet. So when we've got them stable over a period of time, generating income and everything is smooth and we can, I'll be shouting it off the, uh, off the rooftops, but we're not there yet. Okay. Gotcha. So what's the, uh, like the value proposition for it? Um, it's a lot more hands-on than property investment, um, even more hands-on, I'd say, than running a short-term stay business because you have to be constantly monitoring daily reports and not just like um, over a period of a few days or a week. Um, but it does stand to gain a lot more potentially than property investment income. So we're talking double digits and beyond or very high single digits as a start. Um And it also, because it's a franchise business and there's a franchise chain in place that we've researched and we know I've got a good working manual and blueprint that can actually help you open and become profitable, uh, not as a guarantee because it's still a business, but definitely with a lot less risk than a a start from scratch business. And so that gives people the option of having an investment that can be managed remotely. You still need to make decisions, bottom line decisions, but you can manage it remotely with the team on the ground that does everything on your behalf. And then you can also leverage that if you're interested in getting a business management visa and getting into Japan that way. Okay, gotcha. And then once you're a resident in Japan, would that affect your mortgage abilities? Once you've got a company in Japan that's profitable over a period of time, that's already a very good place to start. And then the last bit would be to either, Emil is more of an expert than that, but you need to at least show that you're on the path to becoming a resident, right? Um, well, even if you're on a visa, that could be okay. But the issue is when just because you're a resident and you're employed, so you have a company and you're an employee of your company, you're going to be paying yourself a salary. And the bank will give you seven times that salary, but that conflicts with you're probably going to have your salary look very, very low to minimize taxation, 
right? Or especially early on, you're not just making hand over fist and paying yourself 100 grand a year, right? Um, so they'll say, okay, you're a salaried employee of your own company. So that's one risk factor because it's your own company. Another one is, well, actually, how much are you making? And if you say you're making 10 million yen, but the bank, but and you're paying yourself 10 million, you're paying tax on it, but your actual employment, but your company is not profitable, it's in the red because they're paying you too much salary. Uh, it's not going to, it's going to be challenging. So it's not an easy pathway. Just I'm in Japan, I'm resident. Let me get the great financing. Mm, it's going to be challenging. That's even for long residents that own their own business here, right? That, you know, and, and it's a legitimate, they also have challenges getting the same level of financing as if they just worked at a, 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 a Sony or any other company. investment loans and business loans are always a lot more strict than uh, homeowner <clears throat> loans because there's a risk factor involved for the bank as well. You can walk away from a business or an investment property much easier than you'd walk away from your family home, right? Have you heard of uh, house hacking? I house hack. Yep. So that is a thing in Japan then? Yeah, I do it. Mm-hmm. Is that common? Um, I so most there's a lot of houses that are um, uh, that you that you build as like two generations in the same house, um, and most people actually have the grandparents living there. But for me, um, I use the 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 apartment as a hotel. It's a it's a licensed hotel, so I house hack. Um, and there are other people who uh, they might build, uh, you know, they, they'll live on the top floor and they'll have like four units below. So um, it's good for loans as well. Uh, it's good for loans. You, yeah. If you're using uh, 50% or more of the property for your own private residence, then you qualify for a home loan, even if you're renting out the other half. So the terms would be a lot better and you get a hundred percent coverage uh, mm-hmm. financing. So, yeah. So you don't need to hack. So, just to explain house hacking is when you have a house and but you turn part of it into rental units, separate mm-hmm. rental units. Um, so in Japan, it's called actually like uh, it's the Japanese term is chintai heyo jutaku. So chintai means rental, heyo means like mixed use, jutaku means home. So rental mixed use to home, and that's actually purpose built. Like it will be maybe the entire first floor will be the owner's residence, and mm-hmm. upstairs will be four small like one room apartments or maybe yeah. third floor as well um and to get you can actually in japan get the full home loan on a property like that even mm-hmm. though half of it is rent as long as less than half um at least 51 percent of it 50 percent or 51 percent of it needs to be the primary residence and so the other 49 percent can be the uh, rental apartment. So we did one in Yokohama. I think it was like in this was it December, November, December. I think it was a brand new house that was built, and it was a two two story building. The um, north side of the building had um, four units: two downstairs, two upstairs, like little like ten, like maybe uh, twenty square meters each, twenty two square meters each. So four downstairs, uh, sorry, two downstairs, two upstairs, and the south side of the building was a two story house. I think it was like 95 square meters for the two-story section and then about um, 80 square meters. Yeah, four by two. Yeah, about 80 square meters for the uh, two rental apartments. And now all those rental apartments are currently rented out for, let me check, I think about 50,000 yen a month, 50, 60,000 yen each. And that was like 100 million yen. Um, so uh, that's half the mortgage right there. 
Let's so, have well, a mortgage more, on like, it. Uh, well, 100 million yen, the mortgage is 280,000 yen a month. Uh, so more, okay. Um, yeah, so it's 280,000 yen. So he's getting about 200, like, hold on. Um, uh, let's see, the mortgage was, I think it was like 60-something, uh, 68,000 yen a month. I'm just looking now at the, the new tenant. 68,000 for one of the rooms. So let's say 65, so times four is he's getting 260,000 yen a month. His mortgage for that property is 280. That's amazing. A month. That's fantastic. Right? So yeah. A $200 a month shortfall. Yeah. So yes, it happens. Um, that was a very well, like that, that was one of the nicest um, mixed use properties I've seen. Often it's like one floor is the primary residence. One floor is the rental. And so you have, you're either like, it's, it's like uh, everyone enters from the front and you have the apartments on top. So you hear footsteps and stuff or vice versa. If you're on the top floor, you always have to walk up the stairs to get there. We're looking for something exactly like that now, actually. We, we want yeah. to have the office, a rental and residence, like all in the one. Yeah. I, my neighbor actually built one, um, but they built two entrances. So um, they actually live on the third floor and they put an elevator in there and they've got like a three bedroom upstairs and they've got the view and they've got the sun. And then the two, the two lower floors you enter on a completely different side of the house because it's on a corner. Um, and then they've got stairs and they've got, it's got five apartments in there and it's um, like, it's right at my window. Um, and it's a great design. It's a really good design. So, uh, the, you know, the older, there's a couple of older styles that, that are a bit, you know, a bit ordinary. Um, but, you know, if you're working with a, a good architect, you can you can really do some yeah. nice work. Yeah. If you're so intentional Ziv, about it. Mm. Ziv, I think you mentioned uh, at the beginning that you try to sell every five to 10 years. Is that um, right? Not, not as a given, but because it's kind of because we like to operate on the most profitable little bracket, right? So we find, for example, that um, studio or two-bedroom apartments between 30, between let's call it 20 to 35 years old are the most profitable, right? Just because of the price versus rental yield graph and how old, how quickly they become old and require more maintenance. So we, you know, we've looked at it and we found that between 20 to 35 years old is the sweet spot for us. So then if we buy somewhere along that line, we want to resell as it gets to 35 years old and becomes less profitable. So that kind of dictates somewhere between five to 10 years, depending on the property. But we have customers who have held on to them for longer and we have some that have, you know, resold them within three or four years for some reason. So so if someone did what Tracy just said and, and put in an elevator in a property and then they sold it in five to 10 years, would they see their money back for that? renovation depending on location i'd say definitely they would see the money back if it was an investment and if it was priced based on the actual investment income that it generates <laughs> but if it was a private use property um i i don't know that they would get their money back usually renovations don't cover that i think right yes yeah i think renovations you don't see it back they can't do a flip and um this was a new build Mm, yeah, this yeah. is a new build. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't just add an elevator. That's that's so just forget no. about elevator for the most part. Um, but just the general renovations and flipping. Um, our office also have a do do renovations and flips. Um, 
it's not as profitable as as you would think. And that's even as a company doing it. As a, individuals, the taxation is different. I've discussed before um, on the podcast. Um, if you're an individual trying to do a flip, you pay capital gains tax at 40%, whereas a corporation, um, the capital gain is actually considered business revenue. So they're paying at the regular rates and business expense, whereas an individual will be paying it as a capital as a short-term capital gain. Short-term capital gain is anything within five years. So generally you don't want to sell. You need to hold for at least five years and then capital gain from five years onwards drops down to about 20%. It, it is wow. a business that you can get into in Japan if you want to, but you would be setting up a company and getting contracts and contacts in place and looking for the best. It's not as easy and profitable as it is in a lot of other countries where it's a given thing that you can buy, renovate and flip for a profit. It's not as easy here. No. Radically different than, than where I am. Just, just to give you an example they- here. Yeah. Um, I, I was looking at a property that was like about 70K uh, US, US dollars in 2001. And now it's like 320K. Anywhere like, in the world, 2001 <laughs> is like, like, like I said, that mansion in, in, in Shinjuku that we sold, in, that was brand new. 2001 was like 50, like 60 million yen. And now it's 92 million. Um, in the States, you had the double dip of the 2008 and then COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing is, this property is 100 years old. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. That could very be, different. Like, I know if I was in Australia now and you, in the US, probably easier because you, you have like, you can't get $70,000 houses in, in Australia, but you can in the US. Um, even like, it, oh, it depends. I had, when I was going to, was it Utah? I think, no, or, or Kansas. And he was buying, like, again, these sub $100,000 properties and flipping them. It's easy to make multiple, yeah, you know, and easy to make Kansas. It was Kansas, yeah. It's Kansas, yeah, yeah. And easy to make multiples of 10,000, you know, 20, 30, $40,000, $50,000 on a flip. Um, on like the lower because 70 to 110, like people like that's that's kind of doable, and that mm-hmm. I think is a good way, is actually maybe like a, a realistic kind of entry point or strategy. I know if I were in my 20s now, again, that's probably a, a, a good sort of easy way. That will be just like an influencer. Well, I'm still trying to influence. Especially, <laughs> if you, especially if you're doing the work yourself, but I mean, I just wonder how much of an influence. Things like HGTV in the US have have made on the housing market, and whether whether it's, if the equivalent became popular in Japan. Um, I know Matt and I have talked about this. Um, you know, if uh, HGTV, you know, like the that, um, the TV shows where it's just like the house flip, and, and it's just if you oh, yeah, if you've yeah, been yeah. to the US or even in Australia, those property brothers shows, or something. The property brothers, you know, in Australia, there's the block and and all the yeah. rest of it. So, um, because that sort of is part of the the culture and you know popular culture, people watching that stuff, it makes it gives more people the confidence to go and do this, to go and say, you know what, I could, you know, I could renovate. I've got some skills. I could do that. 
I know which isn't, like isn't it a chicken and egg thing? Like they started exactly. running these shows because people were interested in it. And as long as Japanese are terrified of having a side gig or a side hustle or investing, but, I don't know how popular that'll be. But there's but the YouTube, the YouTubers like Anton, who we've had on before, those those people, they have massive channels and they're just documenting their own, you know, side hustle journey. Um, mm. that's starting to get some traction, I think. So oh. um yeah, it's, I, I just think it's a really interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's just a really interesting phenomenon how one leads the other. Yeah, was was there like a COVID boom in real estate prices in Japan, like there were in in the US? And I safe, safe and steady didn't change that much. Went kind of fluctuated for a couple of months and then went back to stability and slight gains. But that's Japan. That's why people, that's one of the main reasons people invest here is for that stability and safe gains. Even if they're not super high, we know what we're getting every month kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. What's what's the like average cash flow, Ziv, in a metropolitan area? Or does it differ by all metropolitan areas? Um, it does differ, but we normally, if somebody needs to use us for ongoing management as well as the purchase, that's usually going to be Four to six percent net before tax, six and a half if we're lucky. And in Tokyo, three percent um, for a unit. If you have a building, you might be able to get like six percent, but that's gross. Um, Ziv does Ziv's calculation is always like you know um, net, net pre-tax. pre-tax. Yeah. Whereas the ones you see advertised in Tokyo, what I'm saying like three to three to five percent is gross. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So then you have okay. a different fee, like building management. Yeah, yeah. So not nearly as attractive, but hey, people want Tokyo. And anyone who's bought in Tokyo in the past, I guess, except from the bubble in the past, be it three, five, 10, 15 years ago, is doing, is up. Is like You're the, not going to lose your money. Yeah. yeah their, their property right now is worth more than what they paid for it. Yeah. I would think uh, Tokyo would like cash flow really well because there's so much demand to be there. Right? No, uh, but <laughs> yeah, but, there, there's, see, but that's so it's because there's so much demand and so much attractiveness. People are actually willing to pay a premium on the purchase price, right? I can live with four like, percent. I can live with three percent. I can live with two percent, especially if they're big investors. And the, you know, the only other option is like government bonds or corporate bonds. And two percent looks attractive. Let's go for Tokyo. It's safe. There, there's a lot of construction going on all the time and, and actually Tokyo is just getting in terms of uh, density of, of uh, availability it's getting higher and higher so um, there is no there is no housing crisis here in terms of not having enough rental properties mm. um, there is there is more and more supply coming as as uh, buildings are coming down they're building they're, they're building up um, you know, mansion. When we say mansions, we mean apartment condos that um, have more and more um, per, you know, more and more, you know, uh, availability in in the same footprint as what was there before. So, mm. so there's there's no there's no issue with uh, there's no issue mm, with not, um, with uh, not, rentals. That's what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying. Not always, actually. A lot of times, though, like the zoning has changed to restrict further the amount of that um, that you can build. So a, an old mansion, a vintage mansion from the 70s or 80s might have, you know, say 
2,000 square meters of space, if they were to tear it down and rebuild, they can only build like 1,500 square meters of space because of the way regulation. I think it depends on the area, but that's not... Depends blanket, on the area, but, but from what I see, getting they're, more they're, pulling down, you know, they're, they're pulling down larger places and they're, they're going up higher and they're actually getting more units per... Uh, they're getting more actual doors um, for, than, than on the footprint that, that was there before. They're getting smaller yeah. in the city centre. They're getting smaller. I'm, each 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 door is getting smaller. Hundred yeah. percent. Um, I'm sorry, folks, but I I will have to head off in in a couple of minutes. So, is there any like final question that we haven't covered, Michael? Anything that we still need to talk? Nope. Got everything. Thank you so much. Uh, that was extremely thorough. Perfect. Very very good Thank to have you. Thank you very much. Very good, intelligent questions, and you're asking the the right questions for someone with just like a blank kind of canvas on. How does the Japanese market work? Like, this is how I know from where I'm from. This is it. Like, you asked, you know, very intelligent questions and, and the right questions for someone who is just trying to get familiar with it. So, well done on your part yeah, too, Michael. We'll be interested <laughs> yeah. in having you back um, once you've got more investments in your portfolio and, and let us know how you're going. It'd be really yes. Oh, definitely. Thank you. For sure. Luck with yeah, the first and, flip. You know, if, if, when you come to town, you've always got a place to stay. Yes. Oh. It's, it's, I might take you up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks folks uh, i'll be heading off speak to you soon all, all right thanks See again you later thank you bye bye well there you go that was a good session i thought we rarely cover such a wide variety of topics in a single episode and definitely not at this level of depth i really hope you found some value in it i know we all did now before we go we're also as always going to tell you and also link to our other sponsors website that's Hiroshi Shimizu immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener if you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku! Yoroshiku!